0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Tonight, I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President to say, he billed this
1: rally as historic and the hottest ticket ever, but it was actually just a collection of his greatest hits. Internal poll taken by the Trump campaign in March showed the president behind Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden in Florida by seven points. In the general election matchup, Vice President Biden would beat President Trump 50 to 41 a healthy nine-point margin. Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Where Did You Get This Number? I am Anthony Salvanto from CBS News, joined once again by my
0: colleague and CBS News political consultant, Lenny Steinhorn. Lenny, how are you? I'm well. Looking forward to this. A lot, a lot to dig through here in our love of politics and figuring out what the tea leaves are ahead. We're looking at the, uh, with the
1: fish fry, the big fish fry down in South Carolina and the Democratic Convention there. We've got some new polling to dig through, and one of the things that stood out to me in our big new Battleground Tracker poll, where we looked at all the early states, was how focused the Democrats are on this idea of electability. And I suspect as you start to see them make speeches in South Carolina and others over the course of the coming weeks, it strikes me that there's this real test for them to say, I can be the candidate who can beat Donald Trump. And it's also very clear that right now Joe Biden has persuaded maybe even convinced a lot of these democratic voters that he at least has a real chance at that 75 percent of his backers think that he'd probably beat donald trump he's up in all of the horse race polls for what those are worth at this point he's in the mix among those candidates that people are considering but it really does seem like that electability test is going to be the one that all of them have to meet first
0: Yes, they do. And I think there's sort of two sides to the Democratic vote right now. There's sort of this yin and yang. There's this sort of hopeful side, which has them looking at the policies. That's where you find encouraging poll numbers for Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, the whole sense that what they would like America to be like in the future. And they lay it out. They want to address inequality and health care and college education and climate change and guns and infrastructure and all the rest. That's the hope idea, but this poll really shows me, at least, that in part pardon my uh, phrasing here, that the scared side of the Democratic Party trumps the hope <laughs> side. What do you mean
1: scared, man? What do you mean scared?
0: Well, by scared, I think it's the very real chance that Donald Trump could be reelected for another four years. Uh, Look, the Democrats right now, it seems like they want this electability. They don't want to make the perfect the enemy of the good right now. That's where Biden is getting his votes. They're not in love with Biden, but they think he has the best chance to get uh, elected against Donald Trump. But for them, they are so worried that if Donald Trump gets reelected, what's it going to mean for our democratic institutions, for the character of our country, for our overseas alliances? For civil rights, voting rights, women's rights, the environment, they're terrified. So they're gravitating at least on the popular image of somebody that they think can beat Donald Trump. See, this is one
1: of the fascinating bank shots of American politics to me. And we see this when Democrats are picking a candidate this year. We've seen it in Republican primaries, too. The idea that somebody appeals to you, a voter partly because you think they appeal to somebody else. Now, I'm going to leave aside the premise for a second that you put out there that they're not in love with Joe Biden. I don't know how the data really reads on that. It does seem like he's doing well converting people who are considering him to support. But this idea that a voter can game out what other voters want is fascinating to me as a pollster. Look, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out what people people want, right? Now, maybe the American public can do that better than than we can, or maybe they read the polls and try and figure it out. But, you know, we did some some questions on this. We said, what do you, the voter, the Democratic voter, think that – is your best chance to win in 2020 with a nominee who is a new face to politics or a nationally known figure in the abstract. And the overwhelming majority said they thought a nationally known figure. And that struck me as surprising because oftentimes in primaries, especially with dissatisfaction with Washington and, you know, this ongoing theme in American politics, you find voters going, give me somebody new, give me somebody entirely new. And this year, Democrats, maybe to your point, are saying, hey, give me somebody who's known who doesn't have to build that that familiarity curve.
0: Yeah, and let's dial back four years ago, uh, to some extent, to the Republican Party, okay? That nationally known name, that person that a lot of Republicans thought was most electable is Jeb Bush, okay? People liked him. He was leading in the polls. He was doing pretty well, but all of a sudden, he just didn't capture their imagination. So the question is, can Joe Biden keep that sort of likability, that sense that he's the right guy, but can he also capture their imagination in a way that says, yeah, even though he's been around, he's fresh, he's got ideas, he can get things done, he can sort of answer our prayers for the future and beat Donald Trump. It's funny whenever I hear folks talk about that Jeb Bush lead in the polls,
1: which you're, you're right about back in, in 2016, whenever people come to me and say, hey, what happened to the 2016 polls? 2016 polls, didn't see this, didn't see that. You know, I always say, OK, the ones that had Jeb Bush leading, were those polls wrong? right and people say well no there were well right there was a lot of time in between those horse race polls that had Jeb Bush up and what ultimately happened is president trump gets that nomination and the lesson out of that is that voters go through this process and they kind of kick the tires to overuse that phrase on the candidates they think about which ones they may vote for and they come in and out of their consideration set and one of the things i think you're seeing this year Is you've got this field of twenty-four, you know, Democratic candidates, and the voters are telling us they're already starting to narrow this set of choices. Oftentimes, people tell you, "Oh, we want more choice, more choice." These voters in this poll tell us that think that they think the field is too big. So we ask them, "Okay, which candidates are you considering voting for, even if they're not your first choice right now?" And by and large, they picked about four such candidates, mix and match. There was Biden. There was Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris, to a lesser extent, Pete Buttigieg. That really kind of defined that top level of what voters are considering in that mix. Um, So they're, they're already sort of starting to narrow that field. I think the interesting thing will be to see if another candidate can come first into that consideration set and then maybe become a first choice.
0: Well, I also think that uh, who somebody chooses to support for president, it's a very personal choice, okay? It's an emotional choice. It's not just based on checking off policies and saying they've got the right ones. It's making that sort of human personal connection. That's why that sort of likability issue comes through. The charisma I- issue comes through. The ability to excite somebody comes through. So I often equate it less to kicking the tires and more to dating right now, okay? <laughs> they are dating. But You, you win the analogy game. Right. You can't date so many <laughs> candidates, can you? you can only date a few. So this is where the media come in right now, because the media narrative has basically said, these are the top tier candidates. And Buttigieg has sort of pushed his way in by flooding the media zone and getting out there and appearing everywhere. And he did it at the right moment in time to capture a little bit of that imagination. So he sneaked into that sort of top tier right now. But I'm seeing that they're dating these folks, but they're not yet ready to commit, even if Biden does have this lead right now. The other thing that that
1: struck me out of our polling is that I wanted to ask about whether the party message ought to be telling the country that they would try to return things to the way they were before President Trump took office, basically the Obama administration or past Democratic presidents like that, or whether the party should be messaging to say we're going to have a more progressive, more liberal agenda than they've ever had. And what that did was it broke out what's clearly a very progressive, very liberal wing of the party. And you saw vote choice really break along those lines. Biden doing much better with the folks who thought that they should message on the return to what Democrats obviously would, would prefer. And then the others said, the ones who said, no, let's advocate for a more progressive, more liberal agenda than the party's ever had – they were much more for either Biden or just about as even Warren or Sanders. And it'll be interesting to see if the competition then really becomes among that, that progressive wing among those candidates, if Biden, say, keeps the rest of that, that group for himself.
0: And I don't think that they're necessarily mutually exclusive, even though you're getting those poll numbers. I think plenty of people who want to, let's say, return to the past also want a progressive future. And many people who want that progressive future, they're saying, hey, maybe we need to reset the clock before Trump came in to cleanse our politics, cleanse it of its toxins, to you know we need to be motivated by that today, so in the democratic field exactly, and if they can bottle that excitement that Barack Obama had in two thousand and eight and two thousand and twelve among the democratic vase and, and the national voters, then maybe they're saying we have a chance to defeat donald trump let 's unpack that idea of excitement for a moment because
1: it's a word you 'll hear pundits use, you know, pollsters use it. What is exactly excitement? What is it? How do we measure it? Do we see it in crowd sizes? Do we see it in people's expressed enthusiasm? Do we see it in donations?
0: How, how, do, how do we capture what that is? And well, that's a great question. Um, you know, how have we captured it over the years? How did John Kennedy capture excitement? Well, he had a lot of the media writing about him. He was able to brand himself as the candidate of the next generation. uh, And that got people excited at that moment in time that there was something new that was going to change America and move us forward. And we were going to sort of go away from the past of those stale Eisenhower years and Joseph McCarthy and all the rest. He was going to give us a fresh start. In that moment, he excited people. Ronald Reagan, on the other hand, said, hey, I want to return us to this pristine past, maybe to the 1950s. Let's forget about all that disruption of the 60s. And he appealed to those voters and got them excited in the sense that he could help restore the sort of golden age of America that a lot of people felt was missing. So he had that excitement. So how do you measure it today? And that's a good question. In U.S., do you measure it by the number of small-dollar donors? Sure, you can do that. Do you measure it by the sort of size of the crowds? Sure, you can measure that and think about it. But it's sort of this amorphous quality that a candidate has that excites people and gives people that sort of story that they tell themselves about why they want to vote for that particular person. And when they get excited about telling that story, when they share it with their friends, that's when you know they have it. How we quantify that, I leave that up to the pollsters. (laughs) Oh, thanks, man. (laughs) I was hoping you'd help me out. (laughs) Um, But I think that
1: part of the calculus of modern politics is this back and forth between do you need to turn out your base or do you need to persuade? And hey, look, obviously, campaigns try to do a little of both, but they do have to make choices. They only have so many resources. They only have so much messaging, etc. And in this poll, one of the things Democrats said was they need to turn out Democratic voters who've previously stayed home. That argues for, as you're saying, an excitement level. It means somebody's got to invest time, resources, the process it takes to actually go out and vote, whether it's standing in line or filling out those ballots. That's excitement. Enthusiasm might lead to action in that way. But the counter argument, of course, is that there's all these folks out there who, when we talk about electability, maybe voted for Democrats in the past but moved over to the Republican side, certainly a lot of working-class voters who voted for the president still support the president, any chance that the Democrats can win them back? And if they can, how? What's the message? And I think that's one of the things you're going to try to see. You're going to see candidates here in 2020 start to try on.
0: Tell the voters what it is you would do to try to win back those Trump voters if, if they can. And that's sort of the Joe Biden message, which is I'm going to be able to win those voters back in those key battleground states, which we cannot lose again, because otherwise we will lose the Electoral College and lose the election. But the Democratic base has also been changing over the past few years as well. And what you've seen is more, let's say, suburban women, independent voters sort of moving away from the Republican Party because they're alienated by President Trump or the temperament uh, that he's shown or whatever it happens to be and they're the ones who showed sort of a critical mass in the 2018 midterm elections that gave all of these tight races to the Democrats. Do they now become part of the base? And if so, how do you integrate them into the base and create this cohesive message that sort of brings them in? And if you bring those folks in, do you then have to pay less attention to those white working class voters, which Donald Trump believes that he's locked up, but Joe Biden would like to pry away? And I think as we look ahead this
1: week and the candidates get to South Carolina, there's a couple of other things folks ought to watch. One is that the South Carolina electorate is quite different from what Democrats will face in those first two contests, in New Hampshire and Iowa before it. For one thing, a, a large core of the uh, of the Democratic base is African-American, and this is the first state in which you will probably find at least a majority of voters African-American. So that's one part of the uh, of the equation certainly the democrats need to appeal across a large set of their base anyone does in order to get that nomination and then from south carolina It's going to move on as folks look at the map. It's going to move on into a very diverse array of states. We're going to get shortly there on the calendar, Super Tuesday. We're going to get California. We're going to get Texas. And I know this feels like it's looking far afield, but as the candidates structure their messages, they have that map in their mind. And so the rhetoric and what they're saying now, when folks listen to it, remember that they're talking to South Carolina, but they're also talking across what will be a very diverse set of states as they head
0: forward out of that out of that race. And as you say South Carolina is important in large part because more than half of the democratic primary voter is African American. And in fact, it's disproportionately African-American female. so And and they are a group that really has driven a lot of elections. Many people say that they made the difference uh, in the Doug Jones Senate candidacy um, uh, against Roy Moore. In Alabama. In Alabama, yes. And so they are an energetic force in the Democratic Party. And I think going down to South Carolina right now and trying to drive their enthusiasm becomes very, very, very important. But again, South Carolina coming after Iowa and New Hampshire, we can't just sort of treat it in isolation. What happens in Iowa, what happens in New Hampshire may ultimately influence what people will be deciding upon in South Carolina. See, I think that's an interesting open question. History
1: has you mostly right, but I'm not sure this year is the same. Obviously, we'll see. But, you know, things are so nationalized now and... You know, I can't imagine someone sitting in South Carolina or sitting in California, Texas, for that matter, who doesn't already know a lot about the candidates, who hasn't been targeted by the candidates, because maybe between the you know use of the Internet, targeted ads, etc., these campaigns are getting out to every one of their voters already. People have already made up their minds by the time things get to South Carolina. I think that's a that's a factor we won't see coming
0: until it until it actually hits. But let's say Joe Biden sees South Carolina as a sort of firewall right now that he doesn't do quite as well in Iowa and New Hampshire, but he knows he's popular right now, according to the polls, among the African-American voter in South Carolina. Would that change if, say, Cory Booker or Kamala Harris does pretty well in Iowa and New Hampshire, and all of a sudden, people begin to take that second look? So again, there's so many factors in play that's why it's going to be so fascinating. That's why we look to you pollsters and not necessarily me, historians, right?
1: You, you keep throwing this back to me, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but
1: um, but look, I think part of that is going to be what kind of attention people get out of those first couple of contests. If everybody rushes to give attention to the quote unquote winner, then I would remind everyone that the second and third place candidates can get delegates too. And you can bet that the campaigns know that because Democrats don't give out all their delegates to just the winner. And that's part of their strategy, too. So, again, it comes back even now, even early, too early, some would argue, if you're watching this race, know that the campaigns are out there figuring, well, they just have to do well enough to stay in the mix. They just have to do okay in various regions, maybe in order to stay in the mix.
0: Well, the listeners can't see the expression I'm using, but that's about money. And this is the problem with some candidates. If they don't do well enough in the first two uh, elections, in the first two primaries, the money begins to dry up. And if the money begins to dry up, they can't run their ads. They can't put boots on the ground, their field and organizing staff to be able to get out the vote and get their supporters out there to sort of spread the word and bring people uh, to the polls. So again, it's not decisive, but it's influential what happens in those first two uh, contests. And that could, again, I use the the sort of conditional, could have an impact on South Carolina. So we're going to leave it there, Lenny,
1: at the bottom line, the literal bottom line, the money. And that seems like it's probably a decent place to stop. Um, this has been fun. We'll check back in again after the, uh, the fish fry and maybe right before, right before the debates and, uh, and see where we are. It sounds like a plan, Anthony. All right, mate. Uh, for Lenny Steinhorn, I am Anthony Salvante. This has been this edition of Where Did You Get This Number? Thank you for listening. Thank everybody at CBS News Radio, Alan Pang for production, and uh, we will see you here again on the next episode. Thanks for listening.